Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Hedden Gallagher. This week, we'll talk to leading academics who are shining new light on the COVID-19 pandemic. Our first guest is doing this quite literally. He spoke with my colleague, Mary Martialai. I recently spoke with Jake Shelley, a professor of chemistry and chemical biology, who I know from his work developing a plasma-based mass spectrometer, versatile and portable enough to ID and detect everything from illegal drugs and contraband to verifying the safety of produce. The plasma source his lab built for mass spectrometry creates a light that is now being incorporated in a RAMID spectroscopy method that might be able to detect antibodies or live viruses, including COVID-19. Jake, start by giving us an overview of Raman spectroscopy. Right. So, so this project is is uh, really exciting for us because it's not only uh, going to be geared towards medical diagnostics, but it's also developing a new technology that hasn't been described before. Um, so, Raman spectroscopy is really well known. It's basically you shine light on something and. Uh, light is kind of scattered or comes off of that surface, and the the color or the wavelength of that light changes a little bit based on whatever molecules you have there. Um, and and Raman is really uh, what we would call selective uh, because of that, that you can really identify specific molecules due to the fingerprints that they produce in these color changes. Okay, and what exactly could the Raman spectroscopy ID? Antibodies? viruses in general, or could it get as specific as COVID-19? We could, yeah, the the fingerprint, uh, it, it really the spectrum that's produced by this, the colors that are produced that, that come off of the sample in Raman spectroscopy, it really creates a fingerprint that's unique to uh, a chemical environment. And so it involves uh, a lot of high-level statistics, multivariate statistics to match basically this fingerprint spectrum that we get with COVID. But yes, it, it should be possible. Um, ultimately, what the, what the plan is, is that we'll be able to examine um, bodily fluids um, or, or uh, extracts from them, basically using a material to capture uh, the antibodies or even the active viruses. We would break apart the viruses, and because ramen is so selective to individual components, we would get a fingerprint pattern that would match what we would see uh, with a standard for COVID. That's, that's the idea. And so, uh, the idea is that we could use this both uh, for antibody testing as well as live virus testing in, in uh, bodily fluids as well as uh, even wastewater streams is where we also want to look at. So what's the problem? Why can't ramen work out of the box? Um, one thing that I didn't mention about ramen is that it's it's been used for a very long time, um, but it's not terribly sensitive. And the reason is that most of the time when you do ramen, you have to, uh, for every million photons or every million light particles you put in, you'll only get one that's ramen scattered, that's at a different color that comes off. Well, it turns out that if you if you change the wavelength that you shine on the sample in the first place and you make it more high energy or you move it to the ultraviolet, uh, it ends up producing a lot more light in the end, and so it becomes more sensitive. We're using something which is called the hydrogen Lyman alpha line, which is at 121.6 nanometers. Um, this is called the vacuum ultraviolet because you have to have really, usually have to have really low pressures because the light doesn't move very far in air before it gets absorbed. But it turns out this, this HLA, as we call it, hydrogen Lyman alpha, 
uh, it actually does transmit quite a quite a distance in air. There's like a small gap that it'll actually uh, transmit in air fairly well. Um, so some people have done ultraviolet Raman, but they usually have only gone to like maybe 193 nanometers would be the lowest that they, they would use. So this is really new territory all around, and that's what makes it exciting. So I'm guessing there's a reason people haven't done Raman spectroscopy with ultraviolet light at the level of the hydrogen lime and alpha line. What is it? So the, the as I mentioned, we need a really, really intense light source. Um, and this hydrogen lime and alpha emission, it's actually relatively easy to produce. Um, it's the most common uh, color or wavelength of light in the entire universe, in fact. Um, so it's it can be pretty easy to produce, um, but most of the light sources that exist to produce this are really big, expensive things that don't produce a lot of, of this, this light. Um, in fact, we have a light source here that we're using. It costs us $60,000. Um, it's very complicated. You would never be able to take it into a field. Uh, you have to have specialized people using it. And uh, it turns out the little plasma source that costs us, you know, maybe a, a 50 to $100 to build uh, works better and produces more uh, light, HLA light, than, than other sources. Um, and so, so our role in this, yeah, is to make uh, not only a source that can produce a lot of, of hydrogen lime and alpha emission or uh, light, but also to be able to make it in a compact package so that this entire thing can be portable because ultimately we want it to be shoebox size or a little bit bigger that we could take this around. Right, so take a crack at explaining how you're able to produce a more intense HLA light for a hundred bucks than conventional, more expensive HLA light sources. It just has to do with how they're, how they're producing uh, the excited hydrogen atoms that produce the light. Um, they're, they're doing it at a very low pressures, very, very, very low pressures, um, and are using an electron beam to excite the, the hydrogen molecules, break them apart, and excite them. Um, and, and that turns out to be not a very efficient process, because if you're at low pressures, there's not a lot of hydrogen-containing species to excite. So the plasmas that we produce, the electrical plasmas, are, are at ambient pressures or very close to atmospheric pressures. Um, so there's a lot more uh, hydrogen-containing species that are around that allow us to, to produce this light. Um, we're also using a type of plasma which is called a dielectric barrier discharge. Um, this is this, yeah, whatever. <laughs> but this sort of this sort of light source is really unique in that it it produces an electrical discharge and light from that discharge at very narrow time increments, very short times. And so it creates a pulse of light that's very, very intense. And it has to do with the fact that we're we're basically uh, exciting and uh, yeah, dissociating and exciting hydrogen containing species uh, very, very rapidly in these plasmas. That is so neat. I think of your work as creating this plasma-based mass spectrometer that would be portable and versatile, but in a way, is your specialty really working with plasmas? Yeah, I mean, that, that definitely is an area that, that we have a lot of strength in, is not only designing plasmas and engineering plasmas for different purposes, but understanding how they operate fundamentally. Um, so the processes that are involved in terms of light production, in the case of Raman, in the case of our mass spectrometry work, it's how do we produce ions, right? So we care a lot about the, the fundamentals and know a lot about the fundamentals. And so that's really kind of where our strength lies. 
Next, we'll hear a conversation I had with a political theorist back in December of 2020. Langdon Winner is a professor of science and technology studies here at Rensselaer, who has long explored how technology, society, and politics interact. He shared with me some insights he had on the pandemic. In my view, the COVID microorganism is a kind of catalyst and the disease itself is ultimately a social, cultural, and political sickness. Uh, the underlying disease here stems from features of American civic culture. Uh, our society is increasingly characterized by widening gaps of economic inequality, yawning political divisions that border increasingly on tribalism. We have bitter political battles and a highly unsteady political leadership uh, that even questions the value of scientific uh, expertise. So, so you talk about society as the disease. What's the disease? What's the disease that the coronavirus has revealed? Yeah, well, as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is running its course, a topic of uh, interest to, let's say, public health professionals, policymakers, and social scientists concerns the ways in which different nations around the world have responded to the outbreak and the challenges it presents. Uh, if you look at uh, the ways that societies have uh, responded to the coming of the virus itself, uh, some were rather quick in understanding the basic challenges. Others were slow to respond. What's happened is that the USA has bumbled through a scattered, unfocused collection of measures that left responsibilities to the governors of the 50 states and much of the responsibility also to a um, confused populace. So faced with expert advice that stressed the need for widespread masking, as you know, uh, much of the citizenry deci decided that wearing a mask was simply an unattractive fashion item and an offensive inf infringement upon one's uh, personal freedom. And of course, Mr. Trump uh, emphasized these uh, points of view. Um, he denounced masking and often uh, refused to wear a mask himself. So we had a USA uh, in which we had frequent gatherings of unmasked persons, get-togethers associated with what was called opening up the economy, and um, all kinds of social events, including Thanksgiving gatherings and so forth, which are now recognized as uh, super spreaders, speeding the penetration of uh, coronavirus uh, coast to coast. So again, my basic argument is that in the USA, what one sees is an almost total lack of a desire to affirm a strong notion of the common good and to leverage that to shut the virus down. So faced with evidence of the dangers of COVID and recommendations about preventative measures, many people, many Americans are inclined to ask, well, what's in it for me? You know, all this masking and social distancing and the like are just limitations upon my freedom of movement. 
And I think in the United States, we don't like to be told, you know, what to do. How is the reaction different in other countries? I'll, I'll talk about the Taiwan example because That'd I be find it uh, a good contrast to the United States. Uh, Taiwan offers a uh, useful example of a healthy society. Uh, in January 2020, as the existence of the virus became known, uh, the nation's president, a woman, Tsai Ing-wen, spoke to the people of Taiwan, proposing a systematic collection of steps that would include medical professionals, public officials, and especially the citizenry as a whole. Uh, so she proposed strict control of the nation's borders, um, methods of testing and tracking, uh, social distancing, and especially um, requirements for the widespread wearing of masks. And her remarks to the populace emphasized the need to recognize the common good. She observed, we must set aside our differences and work together for the benefit of humankind. To fight against COVID-19 will require the collective efforts of people all around the world. Uh, the success of this approach in Taiwan is evident in the raw statistics. In a country of about 24 million, there have been only 550 cases of COVID illness and seven deaths. Uh, so that's the, the basic baseline in, in Taiwan for thinking about, for example, the United States. Uh, the population of the USA uh, is roughly 14 times that of Taiwan. So if you take that basic multiple at face value, if the USA had a national shutdown and a firm widely shared social consensus on COVID-19, comparable to that of Taiwan, its number of deaths right now would have been 100 persons, rather than 300,000 deaths uh, and always rising. And that, I would say, is a high price that Americans are uh, paying for what they regard as their basic freedom. So what's preventing us from getting those numbers down? Part of my basic understanding of what COVID has revealed is that um, the country needs to pay far more attention to the well-being of one's fellow citizens and, and attention to the uh, common good. For me, the, um, the, the basic question is um, uh, moving away from the mentality that in the United States has been cultivated really since the 1980s going forward, which uh, focuses upon the accumulation of wealth, and of uh, rewards to those who uh, succeed. And I think there are two famous observations from American history that summarize the situation um, quite nicely. Uh, following the victory of U.S. forces, the British in the Battle of Lake Erie, this was in the War of 1812, the naval officer Oliver Hazard Perry observed, we have met the enemy and he is ours, right? Uh, 
Um, about a century and a half later, 1970, in the famous cartoon strip Pogo, the little possum, Pogo, looks over the floor of the forest where he lives and sees mounds of garbage and trash strewn everywhere. And he moans, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I think in with regard to COVID and uh, climate change and other major problems we face, uh, that expresses our predicament as well as anything. We have met the enemy and he is us. Okay, but if we recognize that, do you think that we'll be able to change? Yeah, well, I think actually in the COVID-19 crisis, um, many people have thought, well, if you just show them the, the science, the biology, the public health sciences and so forth, and, and, and show them what the um, uh, knowledge and wisdom uh, point to, then you would expect, well, sure, then we could chart a reasonable course. But you've seen an inability to come together and uh, to, to form a reasonable strategy. And that's where people like me who study how people talk about society, politics and culture, how uh, areas of uh, consensus and disagreement form. Uh, there's a larger conversation um, that needs to be had about how the best of science and the best technologies will uh, enter into society and have a positive effect. And unfortunately, as I've noticed, uh, the country has not had a very good blend of political debate, political discourse, and political policy making. Within the material artifacts and within various kinds of uh, technological systems and devices, you see, uh, if you know how to look for them, um, understandings about power and justice and freedom and conditions of self-governance. Uh, so one thing that I insist upon in all of my writing and uh, all of my research is that we look into uh, science and technology to see the political realities embedded there. Since our conversation, deaths in the United States from COVID-19 have exceeded 500,000. In Taiwan, as I record this episode in March of 2021, that country has had fewer than 10 deaths. This episode of Why Not Change the World was recorded remotely due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Please take a moment to rate the podcast on whatever app you're on. And if you'd like to learn more about what's happening at Rensselaer, visit rpi.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>